Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence, Jason Wallace, and Mike Nicoletti. Each week, we discuss topics ranging from geopolitics and macroeconomics to energy and technology. You can sign up for our newsletter at telltales.us. That's T-E-L-L-T-A-L-E-S dot U-S for additional data and content you can use to follow along. The following conversation is intended for informational purposes only. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. I, I want to give you an update. I forgot to mention to you earlier this week in our calls that today is episode 100. Really? Good Lord. I, uh, that's worthwhile, you know? Well, I, I was trying to think back as to how long you've actually been doing these before it was a call and before it was a uh, podcast. More than more than fifteen years, yeah, yeah, more than fifteen years, I would say. I hope everyone on the phone has the twenty pages plus three exhibits. I'll try to. I think I think we should have some things about oil and gas supply demand. And then I updated the pages, the four pages on oil and gas companies. So I'd like to go through those. And then the other thing I updated last weekend was NVIDIA and AMD and, and Intel and Taiwan Semiconductor. And I know we've talked about those a lot, but what I'd like to do is split the half hour up, the first half hour energy, and then the second half hour, Mike and Jason on the chip companies and also the impact of AI on the chip companies. But with that, let's get started. Uh, we'll be going from the back of the 20-page memo to this. So the back is Exhibit C. And and I'll for the people who don't have this in front of them, I'll, I'll try to talk you through it. The common number used for oil demand in the world is 100 million barrels a day. That includes all liquids and only about 80,000 barrels of that is crude. The rest is products that come out of, of processing gas and, and uh, other other kinds of liquid fuels. The N22, based on these numbers that are done by our, our Department of Energy, something called EIA, so getting some benefit from our tax dollars, total supply was 100 million barrels a day in 22, and total demand was 99.4. So there'd be a little bit of a storage bill. EIA in March, they do a they do a report every month, and I guess I'll start reading each monthly report, updating these numbers. They said that surplus capacity, almost all was Saudi Arabia and Abu Dhabi, was 2.8 million barrels. They project for 23, supply of 101.6, and demand. 100.9, so there'd be a significant inventory build. Inventory builds do two things. They make for lower prices, and they take a backward-dated market where the price is lower in the future than now, and they turn it into a contango market. By the time we get to 24, where there's more recovery in Europe and just more demand everywhere, demand gets up to 102.7, and they have Demand, they have supply of 103.2, but that's still, there's still that extra capacity in Saudi and Abu Dhabi. So the supply demand for oil, you know, there were people calling for $100 oil and whatnot. 
but that assumed that Russia, uh, which produced 10.9 million barrels in 22, they're still at 10.3 this year and 10.1 next year. So all the uh, sanctions and whatnot have not really curtailed their production very much. Rather than go to Europe or close by places, the production's going to India and China and whatnot. I would say it's only a medium situation for the price of oil. There's some new numbers here on the bottom of, of Exhibit C, which are U.S. inventory numbers, which come out of Platts. The not-so-good news is total of all products and crude inventory is a billion two hundred thirty-nine million barrels, where this time last year it was a billion one hundred seventy-four. So it's been a, a build in inventory. Um, the latest week, and I'll update these numbers every week, but the latest week there was an 18.2 million barrel decline. That's probably seasonal. People start driving more and you get more gasoline use and, and more diesel use. So it's it's only a so-so forecast. When you get to exhibit B, which is natural gas, and I'm gonna do work on this this weekend, it's gonna look worse after I finish the work on the weekend. If oil's so-so, this is a little more negative than so-so. A total production of gas in this country, I had in 23 at 103.2. Well, it includes Canadian imports with total demand of 100.8. That 2.4 billion a day surplus has put current gas prices down at $2. Now, as of the last time we ran it, the average price for 23 was $3, but that's down from like $6 last year and $3.70 in 21. So we're getting back towards 2020 numbers where, you know, gas got all the way down to two for the whole year. The, the answer here is that production continues to surprise on the upside. I have 97.5, but the Platt's Bentec numbers have it already at 100. So I'm going to have, you know, this is going to look worse when I finish this weekend. The LNG export, there's no question that there's an extra six or seven Bs a day of LNG export where money's being spent. It's They're financed and they're being built. But that takes a long time to go on. I had LNG export going from 13 Bs a day and 23, which is about where it's running with report back up to 15. That extra two is all one project or mostly one project which is Golden Pass, which is a joint venture just to the other side of Sabine Pass. So it, Sabine Pass is Louisiana. You cross the river and, and that's Golden Pass. And uh, that's owned 75% by Qatar Gas and 25% by Exxon. Qatar Gas coined money last year. They're just not in much of a hurry to put that on, even though it, it is pretty much completed. So the gas price, last time I checked, and I'll put down new ones, is 294 and 23, 359 and 24 and 438 and 25. But I, I think those future prices are a little bit suspect without that LNG coming on faster. Exhibit A is the U.S. government cash flow, and I'm going to skip over that except to say that the House Republicans and their budget committee in ways and means have the job of taking that trillion four of all other spending after Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid, and pensions and veterans and defense and interest, they've got to take that down by $200 billion a year. And that even agreeing amongst themselves, 
at two hundred billion of spending is a tall, tall order for a group of politicians, but we'll see how they do. And then they've got to stand their ground and tell the Biden administration if they want a debt ceiling increase, they've got to agree to those cuts. But I mean, just agreeing amongst themselves for cuts is going to be hard. Um, the, in terms of other macro, bank stuff seems quieter. Uh, I don't think there's anyone, you know, regulators aren't going to have to work all weekend this weekend. That seems to have quieted down. But, you know, we, we do have that debt ceiling out there. On the energy stuff, and to try to keep this so we still have half left to do the chip situation, page nine is a comparison of Exxon, Chevron, and Conoco based on last year's cash flow. And of course, with these prices, this year's cash flow is going to be lower. They're all trading for about six or seven times free cash flow. You do the inverse, that's cash flow after all capex. You do the inverse of that, they're trading for around 15% free cash yield. Now, the free their cash flow is going to be lower this year. So how much lower, uh, we'll see as each of the quarters develop. But I would guess that if we adjusted these for current strip pricing, what looks like seven times free cash flow is going to become nine or 10 times free cash flow. And what looks like a 14 to 15% free cash yield is going to go down to 10. So are these companies cheap at current prices? No, not really. Are they bad investments? If you own them, do you sell them? I don't think so. They're all three of them are pretty well-run companies. If we turn to page 10, which is the midstream companies, Kinder Enterprise and Energy Transfer, these guys are in a bit of a hurt. If you take their total enterprise value, their debt and plus equity, they're trading for around 15 times free cash flow, which is about a six or 7% yield. And they, unlike the upstream companies, or the integrated, they haven't been able to reduce their debt because they have committed to pretty large dividends. And when they do their capex to, you know, maintain their business, and then they take out interest, and they take out dividends, there's not too much left to to retire debt. What's happened over the years is these people built too many projects, which too long payouts. You know, rather build a project for a four-year payout, they build projects for four-year payouts. And same thing with their acquisition. They have to get religion and tighten up. And, and you know, they're not bad investments. I think Enterprise is one of the best-run energy companies in the world. So if you own it, I mean, I wouldn't sell it. But, you know, it, it, the whole goal here is to, is to double your money and five years, that's 15% a year. Well, off their recent record, you're not going to make 15% a year in these companies unless they make a lot of progress on doing CapEx with shorter payouts. Page 11 is EOG, really, I think, the best run independent. Based on last year's cash flow, that's about nine times free cash flow. That's 11% free cash yield. Uh, their free cash flow would be lower this year because of pricing. Magnolia, which is a kind of an up-and-comer, about one-tenth the size of EOG, but with very good results, they're trading for about five times free cash flow. That seems like an awfully big discount, but it is a one-basin entity, and their leader, Steve Jason, unfortunately died a few months ago, so you do have an issue uh, there of whether the the, the guys remaining can do the same job that Steve's done. Permian Resources is a company that 
comes of a very successful private Delaware-based company called Colgate, merged in with a, an already public company. We don't really have any records for them. They're trading at eight times free cash flow, but the key is, can you can you spend half of your EBITDA and increase your production? And we just don't know. We'll have to see a couple of more quarters of results. And then I added Diamondback here to develop well-regarded company. It looks like it's trading significantly higher multiple than EOG, and I'm not sure that's warranted. But interestingly enough, EOG increased its production 8%. Magnolia increased their production 10%. Diamondback only increased their production 3%. So um, on the gas companies, Antero and EQT and Chesapeake, these are all very good companies, but they're relatively unhedged. And look at the free cash flow per MCFE was $1.90 in last year for Antero, $170 for EQT. 240. I mean, if the price of gas realized by that, and it includes liquids, is off by a buck and a half, what happens to your free cash flow? I mean, it, it really would plummet. So if you own these companies, you want to stick with them. They've come down a lot. I mean, Antero's high price is almost 50 and it's 22. EQT's high price is 50. It's 29. Chesapeake's high price was 107. It's 72. I mean, if you did want to own them because you believe in gas longer term and LNG export and whatnot, I guess you could buy a half position now, but you may see those companies cheaper the way the gas market developing. With that, <clears throat> having taken an awful lot of our time, half our time on energy update, want to turn to uh, page three, which is NVIDIA, AMD, Intel, and Taiwan Semiconductor. Just by way of introduction, and then we'll turn it over to Mike and Jason. NVIDIA is a really good-looking company. I mean, it has free cash flow of almost $4 billion. Last year was a down year, but, you know, they don't have much debt. They clearly are one of the beneficiaries of AI, and, and Mike and Jason will get into that. But they're craving for 100 times free cash flow. So now, early, early year, and, and we... We're covering the video. We got as low as 108. Problem is, 108 was still 50 times free cash flow. So, you know, you got to, you got to, you know, you got to, you know, it's hard. It's hard to your risk reward at, at, at numbers like that. And what you want to do, you want to get that kind of a company for like 25 or 30 times free cash flow. But, you know, the video is a terrific company. AMD is almost as good. It is trading cheaper. You know, like 40 times free cash flow doesn't seem to be as well positioned as NVIDIA's. Intel is just losing, losing, losing. And so it doesn't really have free cash flow. And then Taiwan Semiconductor is very heavy on the capital spending. So let's move their free cash flow down to 10 billion. And they're trading for like 40 times free cash flow. Will they continue to spend as much as 36 billion on CapEx? Probably. They're certainly, I mean, they're building in the U.S., in Arizona, and I think they have a plan to build in Europe. So they will be spending the money, but they are, you know, way head and shoulders over Intel. And remember, NVIDIA and Advanced Micro designed their chips. They, they don't make them. So why don't we start, why don't we start with, the, with the fourth one, with Taiwan Semiconductor? I know Mike and Jason own some of it, but how do you, how do you, how do you place Taiwan Semiconductor sitting here in the 
in the end of March, early April 23, as compared to uh, other other investments. Why, Jason, why don't we have you hold forth on Taiwan Semiconductor first? Yeah, the, the CEO of Taiwan Semiconductor recently said that globalization is dead in his industry. Maybe he, maybe he didn't use that strong of words, but he, he's certainly alluding to having to spend all that money to build fabs in the U.S. and Europe. And certainly that CapEx number is not going to go down. So besides the new fabs being more expensive, now they're going to be building them in, in more expensive locations as well. So that that's kind of soured our opinion on it a, a little bit. I mean, it's still the, the, the semiconductor engine of the world. Um, but yeah, it's, it's hard to, to rationalize that business because they always need to be spending tremendous amount of, of CapEx to to keep on the, the latest chips. And I think that they are the best and they're the only option if you want to be on the leading edge. And the question is, how much negotiating power do they have with their customers? In a way, Apple has no other option. So they have to work with Taiwan Semiconductor, but Taiwan Semiconductor also needs to guarantee some cash coming in to cover the exorbitant expense of investing in these fabs. So it's not clear that there's um, explicitly stronger positioning for either of those two companies. When you go farther down the line to NVIDIA, for example, they have far less negotiating leverage than an Apple does. So Taiwan Semiconductor should be able to extract higher margins out of them. And then the question is, is does Samsung ever catch up or does Intel ever put together a, a reasonable um, fab business. Both of those things are nobody's done before as far as catching up to the leading edge. So it it does mean that Taiwan Semiconductor is in a good position. Would we like to buy more if it were cheaper? Yes. But how much cheaper would it need to get? Quite a bit, actually. I think I think if it were back in the, the you know, the $60 range that free cash yield would start looking a little more reasonable for the type of company that it is. And not to mention the geopolitical risk um, that you kind of have to just wave a hand at because the implications of an evasion in Taiwan would be so much farther reaching than just impacting the semiconductor industry. It's going to affect everything in public equity. So, so, you know, you kind of have to put that to the side and just, just look at the business, but that is an existential risk that is out there. Another question, if the video were to justify it's about 700 or 650 billion enterprise value, it would have to, I guess, get its free cash flow to, 15, maybe 20, given their positioning, is is that something that we might see in the next two or three years, or is that too, just too steep a, steep a hill to climb? I think that they're doing the right things to get themselves there. The pace of adoption has always been, and with all technology, is sort of a question mark. And I think that They've done all the right things to set it up so the systems are there for it to work. And if you watch the most recent GTC keynote, which we included a link to in the last episode in the newsletter, you can start to see how important this technology is to not just gaming and not just chat GPT, 
but drug development to designing chips, semiconductors, to name your your industry, everybody is adopting this stuff. So every Fortune 500 company all the way down will be adopting different levels of AI. And, and, and the way that they apply it, at the end of the day, AI is just software that works well, right? There's nothing fancy about it. Um, obviously, it's hard to do. The models are very complex. But at the end of the day, does this stuff make increased productivity? And I think that we sort of had a light bulb moment where the public woke up to it with the release of ChatGPT. And prior to that, this stuff was sort of happening in the background. Those of us that are sort of in the weeds have been aware of it, but nothing has touched every person in the country as much as ChatGPT has. And, and Jason and I are constantly surprised by who we talk to that are using it and using it more than we do. And you know, we, not that we use it a ton, but it, we've certainly played with it quite a bit. Yeah, pe- people from all industries. And we, we kind of have this theory, Mike likes to call it, chat GPT is going to be the, the ultimate aggregator. I look at it a little differently as, as we've had this theory that the, the best user interface to computers would be, would be chat. It's, it's how... People talk to each other. So if we could talk to a computer in the same manner and it, and it has the ability to interpret our intentions and, and act, act out accordingly, that would be the ultimate user interface. Um, we wouldn't be clicking around on, on little computer screens. We'd just be telling it what to do. So we kind of see that as, as the evolution. And, and if, that, if that were to play out as true, then... You know, that means NVIDIA GPUs are going to be training all of the user interfaces for all computers, essentially. And to take it a step further, it'll be ChatGPT, it'll be Microsoft, it'll be Google, it'll probably be Facebook, all competing in this market, which means from a user perspective, we are going to get a just a freight train full of new products that are going to make us more efficient and productive. Now, how that works out for any of those companies from a profit, profitability perspective, who knows? I mean, it, you know, you look at a lot of these new technology innovations, and nobody really makes money on them. But the the ones that are we feel are more likely to make money are the the quote unquote picks and shovels, and we think in this industry there's no more better representative of picks and shovels than Nvidia. And AMD is the uh, as the second cousins um, is cheaper, you know. And you guys have a much more thorough capacity to evaluate this. They're just starting GPUs and are known mostly for kind of making Intel processors, uh, three eighty six processors, cheaper, faster, or whatnot. So still a lot of ground to make up for to to be considered in the same classification or position as Nvidia. Is that a, is that overstating the case, or how does how does AMD look to you? From a free cash flow perspective, there's no question AMD has built a really incredible business by just being number two. Well, in the GPU market, being number two, and then in the CPU market surpassing Intel in the specifically the x86 CPU market where Intel basically said buy our chip and this is the way we're selling it and you know figure it out 
to the to the hyperscalers or whether you're building PCs or whatever. It's a little bit of an exaggeration, but they're kind of renowned for not being very easy to work with from that perspective. Um, AMD was able to implement a CPU strategy, again, on x86 because of the historic relationship there and the IP sharing agreements that were set up back in the, I don't know, what was that, 70s, 80s, yeah. <laughs> whatever it was, a long time ago in, in the world of, of semiconductors. They got behind, but the fabulous model and the fact that that Intel fell off the leading edge enabled them to leapfrog Intel, the you know the king of x86, in a short number of years. So a couple of good chip designs, hiring Jim Keller, the, the renowned chip designer, obviously helped, but they're now in a fantastic position. But I think the analogy, and I'll, I'll reframe it as a sailing analogy since this is the Telltales podcast, NVIDIA is positioning themselves for the next shift, right? So it may not be totally obvious what's going on here and why NVIDIA is spending all this money to invest in these different areas. But now, now we see this new shift has come in and NVIDIA is on the inside of the lift. So they're, they're, they're better positioned for it. Now, that's not to say that AMD's products are bad by any means. Um, if you want a great CPU for a PC, the AMD CPUs are great. And the, their GPUs are great specifically for gaming. But if you're building AI stuff, the only choice is NVIDIA, right? But, but, but that's to say that all the AI algorithms running on GPUs, they need CPUs to control that process. So AMD is really uh, gaining a huge amount of market share in the server business and the hyperscalers. And you, know, you have to buy CPUs to, to go along with and control the GPUs. What's the, what's the difference between uh, uh, server farm and hyperscalers? Size. <laughs> um, right. Yeah, it's, it's, you, you think of a hyperscaler as they have data centers all over the world and, and not, just, not just a data center in each region, but multiple redundant data centers in each region. And on top of that, they're going to have CDN networks, so, so content distribution networks. And they'll pre-position, you know, if you're watching Netflix, they'll, that movie will be cached in memory on a computer somewhere near your house. And, and they're, they're everywhere. And that's how you can stream movies, content, video, images. That's how you can get them as quickly as, as you can on the internet. Mm-hmm. And, and this is the market that, that is more appealing for NVIDIA and AMD, and for that matter, Intel, if they could make enough progress, because these are not consumer products, except that we as consumers like to use more and more, more and more Netflix series or communicate with each other and whatnot. So the, 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 future, the future is kind of with the hyperscalers of the people who, uh, I think you use the term, provide the picks and, picks, and, picks and shovels to the hyperscalers. Yeah, I'd say that part of, part of this is just a general trend towards the cloud for enterprise software or enterprise computing in general. So the, a lot of these companies are just moving stuff out of their own data centers and into the cloud. So the logical step is to utilize NVIDIA products in the cloud. And, and if you go back to the most recent GTC event, NVIDIA now has kind of a productized version of NVIDIA cloud so that you can do this sort of development, whether it be in Oracle's cloud or, or Azure or some of the others. Or if you want to buy your own. 
they'll sell you a, a standalone data center. Exactly. So, so they're, they're kind of providing an agnostic approach. But I guess the point is, is that really high volume deals come from the hyperscalers. All right. With that, we can finish on time today. Just want to remind the people uh, around the Long Island area that Oak Cliff and New York School of the Arts are having an art show Saturday. And the brunch that's being served from, I think, around 10.30 or 11 on is kind of over the top. I think I think you should expect that this is a result of three years of COVID and uh, there'll be an art show next year, but probably not with the same elaborate brunch. So anyone who's nearby, please, please come. And people have started to drop into uh, San Diego to go sailing. If you're on the West Coast, be in touch with Mike. He gets up early in the morning. We talk for 20 minutes when it's 5.30 his time and 8.30 my time. So by early afternoon, he's ready to go sailing. So you won't be cutting into any investing time if you show up in San Diego and go sailing. So please avail yourselves of both of those. In the meantime, everyone stay well and stay healthy. And we'll talk next Wednesday. Take care. The views expressed on this podcast are the host alone and do not constitute an offer to sell or a recommendation to purchase or a solicitation of an offer to buy, any security nor a recommendation for any investment product or service. While certain information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, neither the hosts nor any of their employers or their affiliates have independently verified this information, and its accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Accordingly, no representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made as to, and no reliance should be placed on, the fairness, accuracy, timeliness, or completeness of this information. The hosts and all employers and their affiliated persons assume no liability for this information, and no obligation to update the information or analysis contained herein in the future and may or may not hold positions in the securities mentioned. 